Welcome to Kildare Talks, where we listen and learn from the people who work across the county, offering us guidance and support on our health and well-being to help us live healthy and well. My guests today are Deidre Bigley and Dr. Anna Kennedy. Deidre is the coordinator of the Heads Up Kildare programme. Heads Up is an evidence-based mental health education and training programme for men affected by a wide range of issues which impact mental health. Heads Up Kildare supports participants to make positive changes in their lives, develop resilience and support men to avail of other local support services that are also available to help. Dr. Una Kennedy is a GP advisor to the National Cancer Control Programme. Dr. Una is involved in cancer prevention and early detection work. Guys, you're both very welcome. So I'm very much aware that you both work in very different areas. However, because we're going to be talking about men and help-seeking behaviour and men's health and that whole area of men's health, I think the common ground is men seeking help or asking for help when they have a health concern, regardless if it's physical or mental or not. So I'm really, really delighted that you've both agreed to come and have that conversation with us today for Culture Talks. Because of maybe you know the work that you do, give us an overview without scurrying too much, the fact that I'm the only man in the room. Can we talk a little bit about some of the main cancers that men get and maybe look at some of the main lifestyle factors that contribute to cancer. I suppose in other words I'm asking you like what are the things that I could be doing that I shouldn't be doing <laughs> if you don't mind. And vice versa indeed. It is a big problem in Ireland that like, we have a lot of cancer in Ireland and the people who do the numbers say that one in three, one in two of us will get cancer. So that's one in three, one in two men will get cancer at some point in their lifetime. But actually it's a good news story. In spite of that, there's an awful lot of good news about cancer and men should not be scared of it. The biggest cancers in Ireland in men would be prostate cancer number one. That accounts for about a third of all cancers in men. And it has to be said that about 90, 95, 97% of men with prostate cancer will survive it, regardless of the stage. The next up would be bowel cancer. It's a very common cancer in men, commoner than in women. But if you pick up bowel cancer early, stage one, your chance of surviving is 90%. And we have a bowel screening for bowel cancer in Ireland. So there's good news for that. Next up is lung cancer. We have about 2,500 cases of lung cancer every year in Ireland. But... We know that 90% of lung cancers approximately are caused by smoking. If you don't smoke, your chance of getting lung cancer go down by 90%. The next up is melanoma. We've about 1,500 cases of melanoma in Ireland every year. And we know that about 90% of melanomas are caused by sun. So if you keep out of the sun, you wear your sun protection, you wear your sun protection clothing, your chance of melanoma drops by 90%. And I often think if we heard this morning that there was a drug that would stop you getting cancer, or drop your chances of cancer by 90%, but the government didn't give it to us because it was too expensive, there'd be war. And quite rightly, there'd be war. But there is something we can do that can drop your chances of getting cancer by 90%. You can not smoke, you can keep out of the sun, you can go for your bowel cancer screening. And if you have symptoms of any description, get them checked. Give your GP a call, get them checked. There's a lot of good news. It's quite scary, but there's actually a lot of good news in it. Can I ask about the bowel cancer? Why does it affect men more than women? It's just the genetics. There's nothing more to it than that. And these things change over time. I mean, actually, bowel cancer is slightly less interesting than lung. Lung is very interesting in that at the moment and historically, lung was always a cancer that affected men more than women. And it does right now affect men more than women. But actually, in the coming decades, it's going to flip and it'll affect more women than men. And they think it's because women historically didn't smoke 
because it was not societally acceptable for women to smoke. And then feminism came along and we all had our rights and our liberties and we all started smoking. <laughs> of all the things we could do, we started smoking. They also think it's probably something genetic about women that they're more likely to get lung cancer if they smoke than men. So while more men than women get bowel cancer, there's not a heck of a lot in it. And those numbers change ever so slightly year on year anyway. You see, when it comes then for men attending screening clinics, like what is the uptake of that? Oh, it's really poor for bowel and it's a real shame. The uptake for bowel generally is about 40%. So 40% of people who should get screened for bowel cancer actually get screened. And it's a real shame. And I'm sorry to say that it's men who are bringing down that number. The men aren't going to get screened for bowel cancer the way women do. Anybody between 60 and 70 in Ireland can just log on to bowelscreen.ie, register, they send you out the kit and you screen yourself pretty much at home and send the kit back to them. And I don't know why people are so afraid of it. But they kind of are. But yet we know that bowel screen is really good at picking up bowel cancer early stage. And we know that the numbers for early stage bowel cancer are fantastic. You pick up bowel cancer stage one and you've an over 90% chance of survival. You pick it up at stage four and I'm afraid that drops to 10%. I mean, there's just no argument there against bowel screening. And it's very simple. You register, they send you out a kit. For all the world, it's like a pregnancy test. You unwrap this little package, there's a stick in it. You dip the stick into the bowel motion, you put it back into the package, bundle it up and send it back to them. And that's it. That's your bowel screen done. And you do that every two years and it's free. There's just no argument to not do it. Two questions then for you then. What age should men be doing this? And have men been asked why they're not doing it? It's between 60 and 70 years and that's a good point to know. And not that I know if they haven't been asked why they're not doing it. I don't know. I'd love to know. Fear's a big thing though, Deirdre, when it comes to seeking help or asking for help from men. Like, would that be your experience with the Heads Up programme? Yeah, very much so. For us in Heads Up, most of the men that come to us, it's a referral that comes either through their GP or it could be their girlfriend or their wife maybe has said to them, I've heard about this programme, I think it's a really good idea for you to do. But chatting to the men, and I had conversations with them before I came along today, wanting to get a sense of what they wanted me to represent in today's conversation. And they were saying they don't like being told what to do. Obviously, there are exceptions. And the younger men, I suppose, are less nervous about speaking about health issues. But the older men and that macho culture still very much exists. And that idea of hating being dependent on people. So therefore, it's better not to know than know and end up being dependent. But also that idea of hating being told what to do. So I think messages when they're given to men, they have to be, in some respects, that guidance or advice has to be done in a less directive way. And one of the men that I was talking to, he specifically was saying that peer-to-peer conversations are hugely influential when it comes to encouraging men to talk about what's going on, whether that's in their body or in their heads. And he specifically was saying that he has five brothers and two of them have passed away. And he was saying it was fascinating. He himself would have considered that they had a very good family relationship. And of his two brothers that passed away, one had a terminal illness. It was actually cancer. And he was aware that he had cancer for a long time, but he never told any of his brothers. And it was only after the fact that they learned that he actually had known all along about his illness. And the second brother who died quite suddenly had been ignoring the doctor's advice and guidance. Like he said to me, that's like a microcosm. My small family is a microcosm for society. That whole reluctance to engage, relate, talk, seek support, 
not wanting to appear weak and not wanting to appear stupid, not wanting to appear not knowing. So therefore, it's almost like that ostrich, you know, we need to keep our heads stuck in the sand and that it's a safer place to be. Do we need to be told what to do, though? When you were talking there about melanoma, like I have a lovely wife, really kind hearted, friendly Scottish girl, but she chases after me around the garden with a hat in one hand and sun cream in the other, forcing me to use one of the other. Because going out, cut the grass, it might be overcast or it might be hazy, but the sun might come out. But an hour later, I could have really sore burns on my receding hairline that recedes back each year. But I wouldn't even consider putting on a hat or putting on sun cream before walking out to start up my lawnmower. I just wouldn't enter my head. And I would consider myself, maybe I'm not, maybe I'm deceiving myself, but I would have considered myself quite enlightened with stuff like this. I think, though, the problem, and as I've been thinking about this over the last few years working for the NCCP, I think we do need, and I need as a GP, to make my world a bit more male-friendly. And it's only when you stop and you take a look at it, you think, God, is this really a welcoming place for men? I mean, there's two females at the reception and they're great and they're fabulous and I'd be lost without them. But they are females and there's a little bunch of flowers at the front as well. And I just sometimes think maybe it's a very feminine place and maybe it's a strange place for men. And maybe it's different for women because as a teenager, you're in getting the pill and then you get pregnant and you're bringing the kids in for their, and you bring your mom and dad in when they get sick. So you're never out of the doctor's surgery. For men, they don't do that. And for men, the doctor's practice is a strange place. So they're not engaging with healthcare there. It's a strange place to them. And I think possibly they do need to be told at least the information, to be given the information. Look, you should be wearing your hat. You should be wearing your sun cream. You should be going for your screening. But where are they going to get it if healthcare is a strange and alien place to them. So I think we all need at our end, the medical end, to do a bit more work to make our worlds a bit more male friendly. They're traditionally, I think, very female friendly. I think also, you know, it's interesting, there's a a huge discordance between the emotional and the, the rational. I mean, you know, men aren't stupid. They know full well they should get checked out early if they have symptoms. They know full well. We did some research in the NCCP and we found that people know that if you have a diagnosis of cancer, you can expect to live a full and active life. They know that you're better off getting picked up early. They know that. But right alongside that, you have sentences like cancer is a death sentence. I wouldn't want to know. I'm not going to tell anybody. And it's amazing how those two thought processes can coexist. And I'm sure in the men you're seeing, those two thought processes coexist right beside each other. Rationally, they know they should get this sorted. Emotionally, they're terrified and they don't know where to go. Yeah, there's an absolute dissonance between the cognitive thought process of saying, I need to know, I need to find out. And I find, I suppose, that once they start to engage, once you are able to get them going on the topic or or they're willing to engage and are quite quick to get down to the practical, okay, now what do I do and what can I do next and where can I go? But it's that initial engagement. But the dissonance between that cognitive experience and the felt experience, not wanting to appear weak, not wanting to be vulnerable. And I'm very struck by just when you were saying there about the surgery and I'm thinking, when I I go to the doctors, I am not 100%, obviously, otherwise I wouldn't be there. And so I am willingly showing up vulnerable. And I think having to do that when we live in a society where men are, you know, that sense of macho-ness and infallibility, I am actually self-identifying as being vulnerable walking into the doctor's surgery. You are, and it doesn't actually matter how much you know or how articulate you are, because I've been in that position where I'm on the other side of the fence and you're incredibly vulnerable. And I mean, I should know my way around a hospital or a medical surgery, but you're incredibly vulnerable. I remember one day uh, an elderly lady came in to see me and she sat in my chair by accident and 
I ended up having to sit in her chair. I thought it was kind of funny. So I just stayed where I was. And what was really interesting was that for the first time, I noticed that my chair is a little bit higher and I was looking up at her. So I'm already made smaller or my patients are made feel smaller than me. And I'm literally looking down on them. And I hadn't spotted that at all. And I have my computer and all my stuff all around me. It's almost like your assortment of weaponry around you. Your armour. Your armour all yeah. around you. And they've and, none. And they've none. No. And so it is a very vulnerable place to be. And again, if I hadn't sat down there by accident, I'd never have spotted it. But it must be very unpleasant for anybody, including for men. Having said that, though, I would say that whenever a guy does come in and you go through a few bits and you sort a few things out, they're generally delighted that they turned up then. And they're very happy to engage with you thereafter. But it's getting them in the door in the first place, I think, is the problem. Yeah, most certainly that would be the experience in Heads Up as well. It is that initial engagement. The Samaritans have done a very interesting piece of research and they, I suppose, came up with five basic principles on how to engage men in well-being programmes. And I suppose the five principles were, if I can remember them correctly, the first one was using activities, so shoulder-to-shoulder conversations rather than face-to-face conversations. The men that they spoke to talked about there needing to be an anchor, something around which the conversation occurred as opposed to it just being the chat, that that was way too intimidating. And because there was that opportunity, if it is just a conversation, my ignorance around this topic or around this conversation will show and I will be the idiot and everyone will see me for the idiot that I am, I think myself to be. And so therefore, if we can talk about something that it's almost like indirectly the conversation you want to have will occur. Also that need to have direct communication and clear communication, that if you are running some kind of initiative or some kind of a campaign, that it would communicate clearly if it's workshops that you're running, that there would be a structure. Yet again, that notion that too much structure was also off-putting. There needed to be banter. There needed to be a sense of irreverence. And I know in the men's groups that I run, most certainly there's a lot of banter. I cannot take myself too seriously because if I do, the men are going to take me down a peg or two. And equally, I'll do that for them. So there is that sense of this space is a space where very serious conversations are had And huge vulnerability is exposed. But we can do it at the same time and have a laugh. And that's hugely important for the men. And that was, as I say, came out in the research from the Samaritans. The other principles that were there was about fostering meaningful relationships. And that was, again, hugely important. That obviously, if that sense of relationship is there, then we're more willing to talk. And I don't think that's any different for women. I think as we form those relationships as humans, that we're more likely then to have a deeper or a more profound conversation as it may be needed. And then one of the principles was to foster a sense of achievement so that you aren't just coming to a workshop, but that you are achieving something by being there. Now, I suppose the research is more to do with well-being initiatives. So you're talking about not something that might be a one-off, but it could be a series of conversations or workshops. But building in that sense of we're doing something together or achieving something together was hugely important to the men. Can I go back to the word vulnerable? I know as a man, it's probably not a feeling that you're taught to identify with. Like, what does it mean to feel vulnerable? My interpretation of that word is you're exposed. I think as a man, you have an internal strength, whether that's created by society or that's within us. It's probably a mixture of both. And that could just be the consequence of testosterone or whatever. But there's a thing, there's something within us that makes you who you are. But to feel vulnerable, to have that strength turned off. I have two young boys. I don't think I teach them that about, well, this is what vulnerable feels. 
I can teach them what anxiousness feels like. I can teach them what anger feels like. I can teach them what love or joy feels like. They certainly know what giddiness feels like. There's plenty of that this morning. But vulnerable or feeling vulnerable is not something that I think that I've ever mentioned. I don't know that it has to be a, okay, today, children, we're going to learn about vulnerability. I think really what it is is that you are teaching them by role modelling it. By not being but afraid to... But the blind leading the blind because I don't even know how to name it myself. But perhaps putting the word on it might help, but I think by demonstrating that you're not afraid to be sad, if you've hurt yourself, you're not afraid to say, ow, that really hurts, you know, that you're not afraid to be emotional. Whether that's crying at a, a sad movie or being prepared to sit and watch the sad movie or just showing emotion other than anger or happiness. It's just demonstrating, just showing up for the emotion. And I think kids then pick up, it's okay, dad's feeling sad and it was okay. Dad hurt himself. You know, he cut his finger and he allowed mammy to put the plaster on it or say, there, there, you're feeling better. I'm sounding a little bit facetious, but I don't mean it that way. I think we don't always have to name everything in a very bald way. Sometimes by just modelling it, we're teaching it. Yeah, and not afraid to say, I'm afraid. That's the big one with cancer, you know. And I think not to be afraid to say to kids, you know, this is really scary. But let's go for it. Let's get through it. There have got to be times when you're sitting in a doctor's surgery or opposite your consultant in a hospital and you're feeling really scared. Like it can be a very scary place to be. Most of the time, for most people, it turns out fine. But it's OK to say, you know what, this is really scary. I am scared witless going in here and I'm scared witless going into that machine for that scan. But I'll get there. Are doctors aware of that? You're talking seven, eight minutes per consultation. Are doctors tuned into that or is just life is so busy? Life is extremely busy in medicine, for sure. But I can tell you that as a GP, we are very much trained in that. Now, do you remember it all? Do you practice it all as well as you should on a busy morning? Does it all go out the window? I suppose it does. But we are practiced at it and we are trained at it and we're trained to watch for invisible cues and we're trained to listen to the language people used and try and pick up on what they're really saying when they say something to you. Do we miss it a lot of time? I suppose we do. But we are trained in it and we are supposed to be doing it. It is the job after all. You're after reminding me, I had a conversation recently with a friend and he's really struggling with stress in his workplace. And for me, I've been recognising this for the last little while in him, but trying to get him to become aware of it. What I really want to do is hit him over the head and say, come on, you know, can you not see this is happening? This is happening in relation to who you are. And the other day he said to me, I think I'm stressed. And I said, Really? Yeah, you think. And he was saying, I need to fix this. And I was saying, you're not broken. It's just another emotion. What you're doing right now isn't working for you. So you just need to find something else that works better for you. It's about managing it better. You're not broken. You don't need to fix anything. I was just going to say, yeah, no, you don't really need to fix it. You need to get on with it and you need to deal with it. But no, you don't need to fix it. But I think perhaps sometimes they think that they do or they must or they should. And certainly like in terms of, say, potential cancer symptoms, I have an ache or a pain. Well, I should get on with it. I should barrel on through this. And oh, no, you get it checked. Deal with it. You know, you don't actually have to fix it right there, right now. With the help of God, it'll get fixed in the end. But um, no, you don't have to fix everything. How much does stress impact on men's health? You know? How much does it contribute to triggering cancers within the body? Oh, I think it's huge. I think it's absolutely huge. But unfortunately, try measuring it. It's impossible to measure stress and it's impossible to gauge how much stress can impact on cancer or indeed cause cancer. So I can't give you a number, but I'd put huge stock on that. I think it's really important. 
can I ask about prostate cancer then? What age should men be looking at doing the screening or the early prevention type stuff? Yeah, that's a really good question. There's no screening in Ireland. There's no sort of screening like bowel screen or like breast check for prostate cancer. Now, the reason for that is because they've never actually shown that it works. They've never proven that it saves lives. And the bottom line for any screening system is you have to prove that it saves lives. So if you round up every man over the age of 50 in Ireland and screen them every year or two years for prostate cancer, they've never proven that that would actually save any lives in the end. Now, having said that, the median age at diagnosis for prostate cancer is 65 to 69 years. So half the cases are above that and half the cases are below that. Once you hit your, say, mid to late 50s, it's just something you should probably have at the back of your mind. And if you're having symptoms like getting up at night a lot, pass urine, passing urine very frequently, not being able to empty the bladder. And of course, if you start passing blood at any point, just get those things checked out. Do you know my Billy Connolly, I don't know if you ever watched the Billy Connolly sketches, like that's where I learned about prostate cancer. That's where I learned about how your doctor examines you. But isn't that shocking though, that that's how you learned it? But why is it shocking? But, it's, but it's, why you know, Billy Connolly of all places? I know he's a hoot and I'm a huge fan <laughs> and he's a scream. But really, do you go to a comedy show to learn about healthcare? Yes, because it's less scary. Less scary, I suppose. Because yeah. you normalise it, you know, and that's what I think comedians are great at doing. Again, chatting to the men that I work with and they talk about that need to normalise what's going on. So yeah, why not Billy Connolly and sit there and have a laugh? And isn't that wonderful? So you went to a comedy gig or you watched the YouTube video or whatever it was and not only did you have a laugh, but you learned something. Why not? I suppose a rose by any other name. Isn't that what we're here to talk about? How we get them to the table isn't what's important. What's important is that we get them there. As I say, whatever method we use, so whether that's in a comedy or whether that's in a conversation or listening to a podcast. What more can be done then? Let's look at all their ways in which maybe using your phrase and make it more male-friendly to have men more engaged in the health. I know what you mean, Deidre, about men that are coming to your service or programme, very often they're, they're referred. So there's always somebody in the background, like I even know in my own personal life, there's always somebody in the background saying, right, you need to go and get that checked. <laughs> you need to go and that checked. You need to go and get that checked. We're not good at taking an initiative. Sometimes, if not all the time, there's a voice behind us saying, you need to do this. You're dragged along kicking or screaming. Because I worked in mental health promotion for a very long time. So very often, more so men tend to wait till they're at death's door before they put their hand up to ask for help. In my experience working with men, there's no one point where it hits crisis. It's a very slow, gradual thing that creeps up on them to the point where they can no longer function anymore. So I'm wondering, like, what more can services do? What more can society do to help people like myself, 48-year-old man, say, right, I need to take the initiative myself. I need to take this serious and I need to notice the early warning signs. I need to have the courage. I need to be prepared to maybe give over some control to others to support me or help me. Even it's really interesting the language that you use there. I have to give over some control. Actually, what I have to do is take back the control. Stop leaving it to fate or something horrendous to happen in my life. If we externalise the problem, we externalise the solution. So it's about saying, actually, what can I do for myself as opposed to what everybody else has to do for me? So it actually is about retaining control. In my head, that's what asking for help is about. It's about me taking it back taking back that sense of being the master of my own destiny. In relation to the question that you ask, what can we do? Again, chatting to the men, I was saying to them, you know, okay, what gold nugget can I take to this podcast? And they were saying peer-to-peer is hugely influential. So talking to other men 
particularly other men who are prepared to talk about what they're going through, that is really useful in terms of recovery. While men don't necessarily like being told what to do, they are hugely influenced by their heroes. So the guys were saying when they hear, say, their sports stars, particularly sports, sending a, a mental health or a positive physical health message, that they are more likely to listen to somebody who is their sporting hero or their hero in general, that they will listen to that. And you've given us a brilliant example, Billy Connolly teaching you about your prostate cancer. And that's how you learnt it, in that kind of indirect way. And yet it was maybe easier to hear when it's something that we have a joke or a laugh around. What about for you, you know? It's a great idea, I think, to reframe it as taking back control, because that will take away a lot of the vulnerability of sitting in that chair with people around you telling you what to do and telling you what you're thinking and what you should be doing better. Whereas you take back control. It's your life. It's your health. It's your family and it's your world and you own it and you can not smoke or stop smoking and you can go out for that walk and you can put on that sun cream and you can cut down on alcohol and junk food. You can do that. You can absolutely own that and you can cut your risk. And similarly, you can go to screening, you can go to see your GP or just make the phone call when you have any symptoms. You can totally own that and you can change the direction of your health and change the direction of your life just by owning it. It's yours. And I think it's a lovely idea. You're taking back control of this as opposed to handing over control because sometimes that is what it feels like. I've done a couple of podcasts on men health. One was with the second series of The Leash Connects and one was with the Longford Talks. The Leash Connects one was about the retiring men, helping men prepare for retirement. And there were two men that they're working in the community, they're community activists and they're very much involved in men's shade. And the one in Longford, it was two staff that worked in the Premier Healthcare Project for Travellers, a chap called Tony Owens, he helped coordinate the project and Mary Nevin who was one of the primary healthcare workers and they talked a lot about the benefits of main shade type setups. They talked a lot about the benefits of side to side conversations whereby if it's sort of in an informal type setting that it makes it more comfortable then for men to receive those types of conversations. My only concern though is not all men are interested in going to a main shed. So that means then that there's a whole clutter of lads out there that aren't getting access to those type of conversations. So I'm wondering, like, what more can be created whereby we can use some type of setting to help men talk more about health and health related subjects? So it could be the cycling club, the hiking club, the football club, the rugby. It can be the repair cafes, that idea, you know. So therefore, those health clubs are oftentimes, that's the thing that the men have in common. And that's where they're coming to the GAA. It's the sport that brings them to the table. And now while they're at the table, it's where you bring up the other conversations that you need to have. And even though I know it is that notion of that shoulder to shoulder conversations, when men come to heads up groups, we are sitting in a circle. There isn't, you know, a hierarchical structure. It isn't me standing at the top of the room, but there's very much a structure. We inform the men as to what that structure is before they come. And we will have a topic to discuss every week. And I suppose everything hangs loosely. So it's contained in that structure in a very loose way. But then we have that flexibility to allow the conversation to go wherever it needs to go. But there is that safety net of saying, oh, we're all here today to talk about conflict resolution or building our self-confidence. 
And so for me as a worker, it's about having a structure and having a schedule or an agenda, but to hold that schedule and agenda loosely to allow the conversation to go where it needs to go. And at the same time, watching the group, listening to the group, I suppose, building the relationship with the group to know, okay, this is going too far or it's going too loose. And as the facilitator, bringing that back in again so as to allow us all to, I suppose, have that certain amount of safety. I don't know whether that's really answering your question, but I suppose that's my experience that there is this notion that it has to be side to side or shoulder to shoulder. But at the same time, we can't do men a disservice and say they're not able to talk about because I find once you start the conversation, they're well able. But is there a need then to look at where men congregate? And I mean, I'm thinking of, say, the GAA and the golf clubs, and like I said, the cycling clubs, the rowing clubs, and somehow get a health message in there. I wonder, would it be welcome in those clubs? You know, are they there going, look, I'm here to play around a golf or I'm here to go for a cycle, not to listen to anything about prostitution cancer or lung cancer, would the message be welcome in those clubs, I wonder? I think it's how it's couched. You know, I mean, if I'm playing GAA and I want to make the senior team or the under 21 team, then I want to be at my peak fitness. So, I mean, that's the angle probably. How do I maintain my peak fitness? Or if I find maybe that I'm getting out of breath or I'm not a medical expert. But I mean, to me, that's the angle I would take. That's the environment where they're going. If I am attending the golf club or the rugby club or the cycling club or the hiking club, then I would use that as the vehicle. I seen something very clever a few years ago in a GA club in Offaly and it was in the toilets and at the urinals there was little photographs or photographs, little posters given the colour of your urine from hydrated to dehydrated. I thought, geez, that's quite clever. Now, I don't know would you go off and talk to the lads afterwards, well, what colour were you? But it was just that something like that, first time ever I've seen something like that, a health-related message right in front of you as you went to the toilet. Normally you get stuff in the back of the doors about safe sex or call the Samaritans or whatever, but the fact that there was something there that you could go, I'm that colour. When you're talking there, I wonder, should there be more person development groups available for men uh, where we can have conversations, but then again, would men go to them? They that do. Going to my question. Really, do they? No, they, would do. They, go? they do. I mean, we always have a waiting list. We have a programme start in the end of September and we've 27 men who are looking for 10 places. And that's not just, I'm saying, 27 referrals. That's me having conversations with each of those men. And once we chat a bit about the programme, they're all saying, yeah, I'd love a place. And at the moment, the programme is being run online and that can be a barrier. But for the most part, the men absolutely are willing to show up for themselves. And that's what I keep telling them. They are the expert in themselves. And also, I suppose, one of the hooks that I use is that I will say to the men, by you sharing the thing that you say, could be that nugget for somebody else. And so it's not one size fits all. I always say to them, I'm not the expert in the group. You're the expert in yourself. And it is that brilliant nugget that you shared. Do you know what, lads? This is what I do or this is what works for me. And I said, you could be sitting there and somebody else is going to say, geez, Anthony said that worked for him. I'm going to try that. And that oftentimes the expertise is there. And men who come to Heads Up, they always say to me, actually, dear, it wasn't the brilliant thing you said, which hugely insults me because, of course, I'm brilliant. But it is always the so-and-so said, John said, Mick said, Fred said. And that was the brilliant thing. That was the aha moment, the oh, my God, that light bulb moment. And it is that idea when they come to Heads Up, it is, I'm not the only one. 
there's somebody else that's struggling, that's feeling like this, that's thinking like this, that has had similar thoughts or similar feelings. And that's the strength of that personal development. What we do isn't important, but it's, I suppose, how we hold it or how we contain it. And it is that sharing in a very safe space. I often think the team at the moment in Heads Up is all females. And I struggle as the programme coordinator with that. And I think, really, you know, we're running a men's group and we're all women, more women telling them what to do. So I do struggle with that from time to time. But I think in some respects it works I have an excellent team. You know, we all work really hard at what we do. But maybe the fact that we are all women maybe makes it easier because it's like having a conversation with your granny, your girlfriend, your mother. I don't know. I don't know why it works, but it does work. Maybe that's something I need to do a little bit more research into. But it is just having those chats. And as I say, it's having the anchor to have the conversation around and then allowing the conversation to be where it is, but allowing the men to share as much or as little. I always tell them, It's the thing that they say that could be that aha moment for someone else. So it's that idea that I'm not just there for me, I'm there for those other men that are in that space. And that's hugely powerful because it's not like me being self-indulgent. It is me also giving back, you know, so there's that notion of that sharing. One word of advice or one piece of advice you'd give a man that is nervous about going to a GP, whether it be with a lump or a sore or a health ailment, we know in the back of our head there's something's changed or there's something different. But I'm scared, I'm anxious, I'm nervous about what it might be. What piece of advice would you give to bring that man through your door to see their GB? Oh, if there was one word, the word would be phone. Really, pick up the phone. Just make the phone call. If you phone me or if you phone one of my colleagues, we will guide you and help you from there. We'll be with you along the journey. Just phone. Chances are it'll be absolutely nothing. That's the reality. But God forbid, if there is something there, we'll deal with it. And the sooner you phone, the better. Look, if you have, or if any one of us has a cancer, sooner or later, it's going to become apparent. It's only a question of time. You'll find out about it. Somebody's going to sit across the desk from you and say, this is cancer, sooner or later. The sooner they say it, the better the better the outcome for you. And the news with cancer is actually really good in Ireland. Our survival rates are really good and they're getting better all the time. But you've got to get onto it soon. So if there's one word, phone. And you can phone from your own home, you can phone from the car, you can phone from your GAA club, from the pub, you can phone. And no one's going to drag you in and start barreling chemotherapy into you or slap you on an operating table without your consent. They'll talk to you, you'll navigate your way through it if that's what it is. But just phone. First of all, make the phone call. Guys, thank you so much for coming in and chatting today. Thank you. Thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed our conversation and I look forward to your next podcast. Until then, Slongo Foyle.